Good evening. Welcome to the Pipeline. I am Western Standard columnist Corey Morgan, and I'll be hosting the show this eve. We got a bit of a different panel as we go into 2024, first one of the new year. And uh, looking forward to it. We got lots to discuss, of course, as always, and, and chew up and uh, dissect for you. Uh, before I get to that, and I'll introduce who I'm sitting uh, with and who we're speaking to tonight, I should speak, though, to our sponsor to kick off the new year as well. They've been fantastic. They've been great with us, and they're great for people in general. It's the Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Hey, you support individual rights. If you own firearms, if you want to own firearms, it doesn't matter why you own them, whether you want to target, shoot, collect, hunting, it doesn't matter. You shouldn't have to explain yourself as a matter of fact. But that right's going to be taken away if we allow it to happen. The Canadian Shooting Sports Association is out there standing up for your rights as a firearms owner. And if you do not have a membership with them, you are doing yourself a disservice. Stand up for yourself, guys. Safety in numbers, because there's a battle coming for your firearms right now. And the Canadian Sporty so shoot, Sport, Shooting Sports Association, tongue twister, is on your side. Check out their website, guys, cssa-cila.org, or just Google Canadian Shooting Sports Association, and uh, you'll find it well worth it. Uh, take out a membership. It's, it's an investment in your rights. Okay. Let's get on with who's with us today. I'll start with the special guest we have, and uh, that is the communications director or communications manager from Friends of Science, Michelle Sterling. She's been on my show a number of times. She's very present on social media and in media in general, and she's going to be here to talk with us tonight. So thanks for joining us, Michelle. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show, you guys. Oh, glad to. And uh, of course, somebody who's more of our regular standby stalwart, Nigel Hannaford, our opinion editor with the Western Standard. Yeah, two bits and you get my opinion and a cup of coffee. But uh, hello, Michelle. Nice to have you on the show. Thank you, Nigel. Hello. Yeah. So, boy, where to begin? Well, we know where to begin. We will get started with a, a fantastic column that just uh, went up in the Western Standard by uh, uh uh, Ms. Sterling there, yes, of course, and uh, I'm not used to looking at the, the remote guests, so I mean, it's, it's a fantastic. And uh, talking about, well, who's telling your pension plan what to buy? Uh, perhaps in a, in, a, in a nutshell, uh, Michelle, kind of let us know what this is about. Well, there's an organization called the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutes, and most people never even really hear about it or know about it, but it supervises and regulates all the banks, financial institutes, and even the pension funds in Canada. And just before Christmas, they closed a consultation period um, where they had created what they call a standardized climate science scenario, which uh, was intended for banks and financial institutes to use this very complex mathematical formula to determine what climate risk their investment portfolio and clients have. Uh, the only problem is that they're using a totally implausible scenario as the baseline, which is known in the climate biz as RCP 8.5. Uh, it's implausible for a number of reasons. One, it has three to six billion more people on earth by 2100 than even the UN estimates. It would use more coal than exists on the planet. And it would also use uh, more oil than is presently deemed to be even recoverable, not to mention it's very unlikely that it could be recovered within that time frame. Um, you know, the investment market isn't there for it, the infrastructure isn't there for it. 
So by doing that, it really distorts the future, meaning that it gives a presentation of extremely hot, you know, this is where the climate emergency comes from. So this should definitely not be the baseline for climate modeling scenarios for all of the financial institutes in Canada and pension funds. You know, because by doing this, of course, it's going to sway investment away from um, fossil fuels, which are the income earning um, elements in the markets these days and always have been, right? So it's going to try. Now, the other, there are two other complications. One is that there's a bill that Senator Rosa Galvez has pushed forward, which is called Bill S243. Um, and uh, it's being lobbied with her by all a huge bevy of green groups, you know, ENGOs, they're all on board with it. And they want to literally like choke off financing to the fossil fuel industry. And they want a dedicated climate risk expert to be put on all boards. And anyone who's been active in the fossil fuel or energy industries in the past five years would not be permitted to be on a board of directors. So, you know, imagine you're getting somebody like a Stephen Gilbo character who would be put on a board in place of someone um, like, um, uh, you know, uh, Brett Wilson, let's say, you know, someone who actually knows the energy markets, right? So that, that's insane. <laughs> and and then um, the, the other factor is that three big environmental groups have been consulting with the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutes and trying to push them into this mandatory climate risk reporting. And they are shift pensions, which is an offshoot of Tides Make Way. And Tides, of course, was very connected to the funding of the Tar Sands campaign. Um, and lots of foreign money had poured into their um, <clears throat> Perhaps not now, but it was uh, very clear that there was lots of foreign money pouring in there before. Um, environmental defense, uh, which at some points has been funded for 30% of their revenue by the government of Canada, actually, but also has received significant foreign funding. And EcoJustice, the uh, Enviro legal firm, which has shut down uh, a number of pipelines in Canada and continues to be really a lawfare nuisance organization and tried to have us thrown in jail at one point. Why? Because we put up billboards. <laughs> so. So, Michelle, if I understood you correctly in your column, uh, this, this office of, that superintends the financial funds reports to, uh, reports to the federal government through the Minister of Finance. So there's you know, they'll probably say, no, no, we never get told exactly what to do or say, but there is a connection there that's clearly linked. Now, two questions for you. One is, if the pension plan says, you know, we don't particularly care for your, uh, for your advice, we're going to ignore it, what happens to them? And secondly, overall, is this not like somebody coming along and telling the pension funds that they need to assume that two and two equals five and make their plans on that basis. Is that kind of where this, this lands? Uh, yes, and I would say that probably the pressure is not coming so much from the government, although I'm sure it's a factor, but probably more from the international banking community because um, 
a long time ago, Mark Carney and Michael Bloomberg set up, uh, well, a long time ago, I guess it was around 2017, after the Paris Agreement of 2015, they set up the task force for financial disclosures. And um, Bloomberg became the chair of that, which is kind of ironic because he's also part, his philanthropy is also part of Climate Works, which is one of the funders of things like Tar Sands campaign. And they're constantly pushing all the so-called clean tech, wind, solar, carbon trading, and electric vehicles. So, you know, there's huge conflicts of interest there. Um, and I want to point out that we have written both to the Bank of Canada and to the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutes a number of times in the past year and informed them of these things. So it's not that they don't know that this is a surprise. Anyway, the, the task force formed another group called the Network for Greening the Financial Institutes, uh, the financial system. And uh, they, uh, they're all using these models. And even the Bank for International Settlements is using this RCP 8.5 um, implausible model. Well, that's kind of outrageous. But look, I was wondering where I had heard of this Tides Foundation before. And of course, it was in 2015. During the federal election that Stephen Harper lost, the Ties Foundation was funding a Canadian, a number of Canadian activist organizations to fight the Harper government during that election. In fact, I, I, thanks to the, Mr. Google, I have this. Uh, in 2015, Tides Foundation donated $1.5 million of American money to Canadian third parties in that election year. Now, this was looked at by Elections Canada, and everybody thought, well, maybe they shouldn't have done that, but nobody actually did anything about it. But so you've got American money affecting our, our elections, and apparently, by, by your account, they are also influencing the regulator for our financial industries and getting them to to use a sort of a two plus two equals five formula when they're assessing their risk of their, their investments from the environmental perspective. Am I oversimplifying that or is this what we've got here? Well, I think you're understating it actually because well, for past, uh, well the, uh, Tides has been in Canada since around 1990 and uh, they were big funders of forest ethics and in uh, 2012, uh, Andrew Frank was an employee of Forest Ethics. And that was about the time that the Harper government was about to do the charities audits. Um, and um, so he signed an affidavit that Tides was funding the Forest Ethics Tar Sands campaign and uh, Sacred Headwaters, I think. And if you recall, the Northern Gateway pipeline had been approved by the Harper government. And uh, one of Justin Trudeau's tweets is that he um, will, if I'm elected, I'll cancel Northern Gateway. So we have a report called Manufacturing a Climate Crisis, which gives uh, some of the background on that. And um, another organization, the Oak Foundation, which is out of Switzerland, has funded a number of these environmental groups. And... Um, they funded uh, West Coast Environmental Law. But if you look at our green group, our, our green reports, we have four green reports, um, Money Matters, 
um, dark green money, big green money, and the green Titanic. <laughs> and this is what's happening. The green Titanic is sinking Canada. If you look at these green reports that we have, you'll see this staggering amount of money that has come into these groups. And most of them are registered charities. And many of the people who donate do so, you know, because they love birds and bees and trees and, and the Kermode bear or, you know, whatever uh, sacred animal comes to mind, people love them and want to support them. But in fact, these groups are actively blocking resource development in Canada and um, also turning a lot of Canada into a park. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of um, unseen interference there. Um, I'm not sure that it's illegal. I don't think so. You know, this is, I think they found all the loopholes, uh, but it's definitely very detrimental to our economy. Well, I don't think it is illegal. Maybe it should be. But, uh, I, I think you're right about that. But I, so many people are totally unaware that it is so easy for uh, foreign foreigners with a lot of money to come and say, oh, well, let's play with the Canadian election. Let's see if we can alter their their environmental policy. Maybe it'll be good for our own extraction industries. You know, I mean, there's a, there are a plethora of reasons why people would choose to do this. But these reports that you're speaking of, Michelle, where would, where would a person find them? Um, they're on our blog. And if you look under ENGO Charities, uh, you'll probably have that come up in the search. Um, but I wanted to say there's, an, a, for instance, Parker Gallant has done a lot of work on this. And he's found that there's a network of these organizations, probably the top 14. Um, they call themselves the Strathmere Group. And uh, they all met and set up their messaging with media influencers prior to the election the 2015 election. And um, they basically set a media campaign in motion. And they said that they have something like 358,000 members in their organizations combined. At that time, they had $50 million in the kitty. Um, and, uh, you know, that's very, very influential. So well, I guess what they did in, back in 2015, they would just uh, set up a, a campaign office and they would phone everybody and just ask if you were planning to vote NDP, would you consider voting liberal uh, for just for this election, if that would be enough to unseat the Conservative? Yeah. And I think that they were uh, successful in that endeavor in a, about two dozen uh, ridings across the country. Sorry, Corey, I don't mean to take over there. What were you say? <laughs> yeah, it was quite all right. No, I was just... <laughs> Moving along, there's a lot to unpack in there and, and uh, still a lot to unpack tonight. I mean, again, getting back to that basis of when they're putting, you know, ESG type principles and things like that ahead of getting a return on our pensions. I mean, that's what should wake up Canadians. I mean, they, a lot of it seems sort of distant to them or, or, you know, out of sight. Well, bear in mind, this is going to directly impact the viability of your retirement plan if, if we allow this to dominate their investment choices rather than getting a return which I think most Canadians would rather have a return. I think that was a very powerful and important article that she published this morning. Very much so. Yeah, so uh, I really well, thank you, John. Oh, pleasure. You know, um, in 2015, I think it was, uh, there's a law firm out of Toronto, um, Kosky Minsky. They issued a report saying that climate denial is no longer an option. And that was issued to all the pension fund beneficiaries in Canada, or sorry, mm -hmm. all the pension fund trustees in Canada 
And um, we did two reports at the time rebutting this report because exactly that point that, you know, you want to have your pension fund invested in what will make you money over the long term, consistently make you money. Well, wind and solar, for instance, is made from oil, gas and coal. So if you're invested in energy stocks in oil, gas and coal, no matter if the renewables market is up or down, you're still going to make money because it's needed for that. The reverse is not true. And now we see that the renewables market is collapsing. And ironically, in 2018, the CEO of Iberdrola out of Spain said that the global renewables industry is heading for a global Enron style meltdown. And we're seeing that now. We're seeing that because the price of energy has gone up, plus the materials prices like copper have really skyrocketed. Why? Partly because everyone in the world is rushing to meet net zero. So, you know, now they can't afford to produce these, even though they keep claiming, oh, it's the cheapest form of power. It's not. And that market is collapsing. They, they just can't make them anymore. Well, that column and, and many others, I'll segue up uh, further under kind of our next subject are up on the westernstandard.news. By the way, guys, be sure to take out a subscription to get your unfettered access to all of those up there. And you can also look in past columns and articles as well online, which is what we'll talk a little bit about. We had a whole raft of year-end review columns that came out and some really fantastic ones. Uh, Nigel, as the opinion editor, you got to curate. And, I, I, uh, I got to share for my writers. Yeah, yes. you, you know, it is so easy. And, and Michelle, I think you would probably agree. It is very easy to go out and damn the darkness and okay. just get plain. But, you know, some of our writers we're able to look into the uh, into the 12 months that have just gone by and see some signs of hope that the things that irritated us most at the end of 2022 are actually, you know, they were taking some hits. There was a few torpedoes in the side. And um, Linda, for example, Linda Slobodin, um, she's, uh, she writes out of Manitoba, but she's right on top of the, uh, the, uh, the issues right across Western Canada. And, she, I won't read them all because there's too many, but she's got one, two, three, four, probably about 10 pieces of good news that she was able to put together in, the, uh, in, in one article. Things like uh, how Canadian parents are taking on uh, the gender bullies at, uh, at schools. They're not just taking it anymore. They're, they're, they're fighting back. So, and then, of course, there was uh, Dr. Barry Cooper at the University of Calgary talking about the great change that's come over uh, Danielle Smith. I was a bit, uh, I, I tried to do the Conrad Black thing and make a big word out of it, Corey. Transmogrification. Yes, it's, it. it's a real word, and it just <laughs> means a total and absolute change from the inside out. And the, but basically, he was saying that uh, Smith has learned a lot of politics since the days when she famously crossed the floor, and now she's much more about... Um, you know, about loyalty to the, uh, well, I guess, uh, loyalty, first of all, to Alberta, he wrote, and, and to what Canada is, uh, it could be at its best. A really insightful, um, a really insightful argument. Anyway, I could go on. I mean, Michelle, you had a, you had a great uh, piece uh, then on greenwashing, which is just, can you just in a few words summarize this stupid, trivial campaign <laughs> I don't want to prejudice your thoughts on this, but uh, <laughs> the stupid, trivial campaign that Ottawa has got going to try and make us more green-friendly. What are they doing? 
What are they thinking? Oh, well, it's called raise the bar. And they're trying to nudge people into climate compliance with things like, you know, hanging your clothes on the laundry line instead of uh, putting them in your dryer, uh, as if you're going to save the planet if you do that, and you're going to save money. But, you know, it's not that trivial, actually, because they're funding this huge psychological research project out of the UBC, where all they're doing is studying how to get uh, people to comply um, through various means. And one of the means that they come down to is that when there are outliers, like people who are refuseniks, say like Premier Scott Moe or, or Daniel Smith, then you actually have to threaten them. Um, you know, with some kind of legal or criminal action. But everything before that, of course, is like nudging people like, you know, turn down your thermostat. And, and some of these things, of course, make sense. Some of them, like if you want to save a bit of money, fine, do that. But in fact, I just got a note from one of my insurance companies saying that, you know, you should keep your thermostat at 18 degrees. Otherwise, you might have broken uh, pipes. Your pipes might freeze up. Well, yeah. so much for turning down the thermostat at night. Who's going to be yeah. responsible for that? You know, Michelle, 70 years ago, I remember my mother hanging the clothes out on a, a line just as the government of Canada is now recommending. It's not a new idea. But the point is the reason that she did it was she did not have an in-house dryer. And if she had had an in-house dryer, that's the way she would have dried the clothes because it was a, this is what you do when you don't have much money. That's so, right. So, uh, it, 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 wow, Go on. <laughs> yeah. no, no, they've got tips on all kinds of nonsensical things like that. Take the bus twice a week, blah, blah, oh, blah. Yeah, and yeah. so, of course, they paid an ad agency to do all these ads as well. It's so millions of dollars, you know, to tell you stupid things. Meantime, China emits in one month what Canada, the whole country, emits in a year and a half. So your little laundry uh, hanging outside is not going to save the planet. Uh, there's a lot of rose-colored glasses about the past and romanticized notions of the amount of work that was done. I mean, it, you know, not everything that was done for a long time was necessarily a good thing now that we have better means. I mean, they used to drill holes in your head to let the demons out. Yes. We, we, you know, we, we've got better treatment. Well, now. just reverting to the, the, the laundry thing, there was a big cast iron mangle and you had to put your clothes through and yeah. squeeze all the water out and try to make sure you didn't put your fingers in there with it. Yeah, I, was gonna say, I probably would have put my brother yeah, through it or something. Well, that, access to, that was a brat. Uh, okay, well, we'll move on from that. But yeah, there are, again, a lot of uh, upbeat and, and, and excellent columns. Uh, it's just kind of a, a plethora of them came out uh, scheduled for the end of the year. Great so, work, everybody. Uh, it was. There was some great reading for the, through the holidays and uh, still there. That's to remind everybody you can get in there and find these things. So let's get on to other foolishness. So uh, a little less so into the world of academia. And uh, yes, one of our... Uh, uh, top educational institutions in the world, Harvard University. Uh, the president of it, uh, Ms. Gay, resigned over uh, plagiarism. Uh, you know, and I mean, I, I think she resigned with a, a boot against her butt. They just couldn't run cover for her anymore on this whole issue. But what I want to talk a little more about is how the media is running cover for her now. And that Associated Press headline that's been picked up by some Canadian mm -hmm. uh, outlets now, and I'll read it verbatim. Uh, Harvard president's resignation highlights new conservative weapon against colleagues, plagiarism. So apparently plagiarism's not actually a problem unless a conservative points it out. 
Yeah, well, so it's like uh, fiddling the petty cash, isn't it? You know, if a conservative finds you've been fiddling the petty cash, well, harumph, you shouldn't be, uh, you shouldn't be going after people over inconsequential things like that, except that plagiarism is not inconsequential, is it? Like, it's the theft of somebody's hard work, somebody else's hard work, somebody else's intellectual property that you have taken, made it your own, and leveraged it into the presidency of Harvard, which until recently was one of the uh, one of the great universities in the world. They probably think they still are, but quite frankly, uh, you know, if, if this is the kind of thing they tolerate. But let's not forget why this uh, why this woman found herself in the crosshairs in in, in the first place when pro Hamas groups on the campus at Harvard University were condemning Israel and making the the uh, board, the Senate of uh, Harvard University, look weak and uh, silent, by comparison, they finally, she was finally called to testify at a congressional hearing. And they asked her why she didn't, uh, didn't speak up. And she couldn't find it in herself to actually condemn Hamas. And importantly, she couldn't find it in herself to say that people calling for genocide against the Jews fell outside the protective umbrella of free speech at Harvard University. It was absurd. Everybody it, should search that clip out. They really absolutely. should because it's almost too much to believe until you watch. Because it wasn't just her. There were a couple yeah. of others among them. Yep. And yeah. it was just bizarre. Well, I mean, what's happened to the universities across this continent, uh, is, is, it's not new. Back in 1989, a, a commentator by the name of Chester Finn uh, said that it, they, he called them uh, islands of oppression, universities, campuses, islands of oppression in a sea of freedom. And when you listen to your kids and their friends coming back home for the holidays, and how's it going? And they lament how it's going, that they can't actually say what they think. They just have to parrot the lines that the left gives out uh, during the lectures in order to pass the mark, and then they can go leave them with a degree. I mean, this this is what we're this is what we're paying a lot of money for. Well, and it fosters mistrust, and it's a bad example. You know, when when you're reading anything, I mean, I, I look at M Michelle's background of books going on. The you know, and, and you're a prolific writer, and and you put out the the pieces as well on and contribute to them on Friends of Science, and I mean, using other people's work as a basis. If you give it a citation, I mean that that's proper research. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it, it's when you just take it as if it was your own that we have an issue. And, uh, I mean, you, you, your organization wouldn't put up with you putting something like that up uh, for very long, I imagine. Well, no. But, you know, the, the greater problem with uh, her testimony was, you know, in the context of the United States, they don't have a hate speech rule. Like, their freedom of speech is much freer than here. But... She was being questioned about the policy on campus, you know, and this is a campus that until recently had been, well, it probably still is, protecting people for, for pronouns and microaggressions. But when you actually have Jewish students being harassed, physically harassed, and their lives endangered and being uh, confronted and bullied by the uh, pro-Hamas demonstrators, uh, that's not... Uh, kosher, shall we say, <laughs> on any campus. That's complete violation 
of the whole theory of uh, academic freedom, because the whole principle of academic freedom is to have open civil debate. You know, that's one of the things that we stand for at Friends of Science as well, open civil debate, which means if you have these very strong opposing views, very emotional issues, you still have to debate them in an open and civil manner and not bully, harass, or endanger other people. And that's what she was not standing up for in her testimony. She was talking about, well, it depends on the context. Well, no, it doesn't, because you've got rules of uh, and values and mission statements at Harvard, and um, they're all about you know academic freedom and the necessity for respectful and uh, uh, research and integrity in research. So, big fail on her part. So, I don't know. Maybe maybe Harvard needs to look around for a university that adheres to the old standards, and then plagiarize their uh, their rules of conduct. It would be a code start, of conduct. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, you got to wonder though too. That unfortunately, you know, this is people get their information from the media. They get their interpretations from the media. Uh, is the headline writer for the Associated Press a Harvard graduate, perchance? Like, why is the media running cover for this? This is, I mean, there's rarely actually issues that are kind of black and white with somebody who did something wrong. I mean, we can, you know, the, the, the degree of punishment is debatable and things like that, but most people can agree plagiarism is wrong and refusing to condemn uh, the harassment of people based on their ethnicity is wrong. So those we've got established, yet we've got a media sort of, Bending over backwards to say, well, maybe almost like her, maybe it's the context. Yeah, you know, uh, I think you've got you've got other examples relatively recently where the CBC just can't bring itself to use the word terrorist to describe people who descend on a, a peaceful rock concert and you know kill, rape, murder, torture, you know, and bring terror. They find some other they fighters or they're this, so. You've got a, a media that has a very selective view of the truth. And I think that where it goes back, there may be other sources. And if somebody else has got a, a different idea, Corey, and they want to write in, I'm happy to I'm happy to hear it. But this is the I think this is what's going on in the journalism schools today. They don't teach the kids to get both sides of the story and write it up in a fair way and let the reader make up their own mind. They tell the kids that they have to present information in context and try and steer the reader to a proper understanding of the truth. Well, who, you know, defines the truth in that scenario? What is the proper context and how does the reader even know that he's getting it? So there's a, there's a term they use in Quebec, a journaliste engagé. That's probably a bad pronunciation, but it means an activist journalist. And that's what we've got in the media, overwhelming. Anybody under the age of 50, check their pulse for, for active journalism. Because that's what's being taught, and I think that's how it's, these things happen. Yes, sorry. No, that's okay. I, you know, I, I think it also goes back to pension funds, believe it or not, because the whole source of ESG, Environment, Social, and Governance, and DEI or DIE, um, you know, Diversity, Equality, Inclusion, these all stem from the United Nations Principles for Responsible uh, Investment 
which is a transnational, unelected, unaccountable body um, that is made up of mostly of pension funds and financial uh, investment firms and institutional investors, I mean. And they sit on about $100 trillion in assets under management. These are the guys who are pushing ESG and by extension, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so, you know, they are, uh, they're, it's a voluntary organization, but once you sign up, one of their six principles is that you must comply or explain. So I suspect that a lot of the pension funds of these academic institutions and many of these big news outlets are invested in some mutual fund or such like associated with this organization, the UNPRI. And therefore, they are being told that this is what you must do. You must comply with these rules. And so they do. Um, and I think that's really skewing public policy. We know for sure it's skewing markets and investments around the world. And uh, people are completely unaware of it. I mean, I was at a presentation that I gave once to a group of uh, stockbrokers. And a couple of guys were there from Toronto and big stock firms. And they'd never heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I felt like, wow, how did I find out about it? But connected to this also is another group called the um, Carbon Disclosure Project. Carbon Disclosure Project is a Rockefeller offshoot, and they invite cities and corporations to voluntarily divulge their carbon footprint and their energy use, their water use and such like. They fill out a big voluntary form, then they get all these questionnaires in, they give them to Accenture or PwC or some other accounting firm which aggregates them, they issue reports with literally a black and white list and that report goes to the institutional investors of the UNPRI who pick and choose what to invest in. And so of course clean tech, you know, uh, Apple, um, uh, Microsoft, Facebook, they've all been presented as clean tech and not dirty. Um, because they're not fossil fuel industries and they've taken over the top tier of the stock market when in fact none of those could operate without oil, gas and coal, but that the investment markets have been skewed because of these guys. And I'll be quiet now. Sorry, I'm starting to be like Corey with all my rants. <laughs> nah, right, all right. And I mean, that's what we're here about, you know, and just to all, kind of finish, I mean, there's a lot of mistrust growing in media and it's unfortunate. Uh, Opinion is an important part of media, but it mm -hmm. needs to be a clear delineation. There's the, you're the opinion editor. I am an opinion writer. We make that clear. This show is an opinion show. It's when it gets into the news copy and people can't tell the difference. And as said with activist reporters, that's becomes problematic. I mean, I've seen Dave chew out reporters for when he's seen them insert, uh, and that's our news editor, you know, opinion into their news uh, copy. So, you know, when the time comes, you get to be a columnist, you can do that till then. <laughs> to the facts yeah. and uh it's it's when it, that line gets blurred people lose trust in all of it and i think it does a disservice to everybody you know and, they say a columnist is just a reporter who writes long <laughs> that could very well be it <laughs> so well, let's get on to an institution of canadian uh, uh content as well that everybody loves to hate and not just the cbc no we're going to talk about air canada uh has seemed to have won an award they they've topped the world rankings in something uh where do we go from there well, I think what they do now, what Air Canada has actually done is that they, they, they are the worst in arrival on time, according to this survey. Among the, 
eight major North American uh, air carriers. When it comes to getting getting you where you're going on time, they're number eight. So uh, and, and always have been. But you know, um, much as I I could enjoy piling onto Air Canada just because it's fun and easy, I have to say that on a number of occasions when I have traveled with Air Canada and have had a particular problem. I remember once bringing small children back from Great Britain, you know, and everybody was worn out after the flight uh, and how they managed to ease our way through uh, through immigration. You know, on more than one occasion, I've been well looked after by Air Canada. So while I deplore the fact that you can get on the plane in Victoria, make the connection to Vancouver, except that that, van that flight has been canceled and the next one is not for six hours, and we're only coming to Calgary. Mm. You could, damn, you're just driving. Well, you could drive it in, that, in less than that. Uh, you know, it, they've, they've won their title fair and square, but I'm not prepared to, to join on the pile on and say they're terrible, they're terrible people. And I think, weren't you, t was it you who's telling me that it's a little different on the international flights? Well, I, I believe so. There's a friend of mine, Terrace, he worked in the same industry as me. And, and it's funny because I, I did a lot of travel. I'd fly through North America, though, so it was always... American or Canadian <clears throat> flights, whether it be WestJet Air Canada or even Delta and United and so on, but not off-continent. And my experience with Air Canada was almost always horrific. Uh, it was it was the the, 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 the the cattle car feeling, the indifference from the, the service and, and things like that. Uh, but he insisted that the overseas service was, and he'd flown with a number of airlines, international ones, he said Air Canada is actually quite exceptional and quite good. So I think different people are pro perhaps are right. They're just, I mean, those are quite different branches of the airline. I mean, I think of the bulk of these late flights are domestic ones. You know, they're, they're Winnipeg to Toronto. They aren't, uh, you know, Hamburg to uh, Montreal or something. So we're getting different experiences of the same airline because we're in different branches. But because I, I had almost nothing but negative experiences with my yeah. time with oh, Air dear. Canada. So, uh, well, I, I was just thinking, I, I mean, it's a cruel, it, it's, it's a cruel and probably undeserved thing. But you know what Alitalia, the Italian state airline, you know what Alitalia stands for, right? Uh, you'll, <laughs> you do? I don't know. I, I, always late in takeoff and always late in landing. <laughs> Something like that, anyway. No, Air, Air Canada's got its problems, but I, I well, give them a pass. And I got to fly with Aeroflot back in 87, I think it was, uh, from oh. Helsinki to Moscow, and then Moscow to Leningrad, and uh, as it was then. And, uh, okay, if you want no frills and scary creaking airplanes with carpets peeling up and... and uh, you know, okay, Aeroflot capped the list, but you expected that yeah. of them. Yeah. And no, uh, I, I imagine they've improved since. I, perhaps you could weigh in, Michelle, uh, with the air travel and, and uh, you know, what, what is going on with these airlines these days? Well, you know, I really feel sorry for the airline industry because if you think back prior to uh, lockdowns and COVID, this was an amazing industry that ran pretty much like clockwork like hundreds of thousands of different elements have to be coordinated to get you on the plane with your correct food in the right seat, you know, and that the plane checks out that, you know, the mechanics have gone over it, the flight crew is all there at the right time and they're all fresh and ready to go. I mean, think of the logistics and that was completely destroyed because of lockdowns. 
you know, because, you know, the, in, at one point during lockdowns in Europe, I think they were, and they may still be doing it, they, they were flying empty planes between airports simply to keep their landing rights because I don't understand all the details behind that, but, you know, they're, when you have a contract to land, then you have to bring a plane in because you've got a service crew waiting there, I assume. So that crew needs to service the plane. And, and so you can imagine how the financial devastation of it and, and some of the things that have happened out of it. And uh, Kate Wand, who's on uh, Twitter and social media and, and YouTube, she did a series of interviews with Robert Lyman about how the aircraft industry was being uh, forced into becoming part of a carbon trading program um, in return for financial bailouts because of the lockdowns. So they've really been compromised, you know, and now we see that the World Economic Forum and uh, some of the European governments are really clamping down on air travel at all. You know, they're saying no more flights under of two hours uh, in Europe. That used to be well, a lot of people did for the weekend. They just jump on a plane and fly over to another country. No, nope, now you've got to take the train. So, you know, these are, they're destroying that sort of star network of connections that people used to have, where you could jump on an Air Canada flight and then Lufthansa and then Alitalia, whoever, you know, but you could always get somewhere. Now those gaps are huge. And, and the people who are trying to deal with angry passengers, you know, you ever get the impression, Michelle, that if this whole climate change thing runs its natural course, everybody in the world is going to be doing a whole lot less traveling except the, the, the people who are at the very point of the pyramid? Oh, absolutely. You know, Canada has an agreement with the World Economic Forum to introduce the known traveler identity card. And the Vaxport was probably part of that. Um, and, you know, they even show a, like a little drop of blood in the video promo for the known traveler. Um, and, of course, the idea of it is good. You know, if we were in a, ben a beneficent um, uh, environment, governance environment, where govern govern <laughs> governing countries uh, or governors of countries were doing things for the best of the citizens, then it would be fabulous to have a known traveler ID where kind of like a Nexus card, you can kind of flash it and just go and get on your flight. But that's not what it's about. You know, it's got to have all your information there. Um, it's secret surveillance really of everything about you. And, um, you know, just imagine what that could do to your travel in the future. And of course, the objective is to limit travel completely. They, they want people to maybe take no more than three flights a year or less. You may have to use your personal carbon ration to buy credits so that you can fly somewhere. Money won't make a difference. You know, the, I, I can sense another column coming on, Corey. Oh, Michelle, you need to write that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, things have kind of come full circle, though. I mean, we expect a lot for very little out of airlines now, mm -hmm. too. I mean, the amount that people travel, uh, you know, even when I was young, it was only the rich or you only did it if you had to typically. I mean, people so casually now, hey, I'm just going to pop out to Vancouver for the weekend or I'm going to take the family to Toronto. You didn't do it that casually, but that's why it's also gotten so no frills. Now you got to pay to check your luggage. Now you're getting, if you're lucky, you're getting a bag of peanuts. Uh, you know, the, 
the older days of flying Ward Air when you had good silverware and a steak are, are long yeah, gone. Fabulous. That yeah. was responding to consumer demand as well. I mean, what do you want? Do you want cost-effective flights? Well, they're going to be pretty uh, rigorous uh, experiences. Or if you want the luxury I was style, going business class. Yeah, mm -hmm. then. Uh, you're getting so. I mean, the, the industry has really changed a lot in the last few years and had to adapt to a lot. But uh, well, also a lot of regulations have been imposed, and a lot of you know sort of consumer regulations too, like that require that the customer always be satisfied when you know when there are big weather events, especially like during Christmas, Easter times like that, when you know hundreds of thousands of people are flying. Well, you know, if there's a big snowstorm and you're all snowed in at the airport. I'm sorry, but your plane is not leaving because we don't want you to die. So, yeah. you know, don't be mad about it. Don't demand anything. You should be thanking us for keeping you safe. But no, that's, you know. What do you think? Air Canada up, down, sideways? Well, it seems to be a mixed reviews on it. I, I, I haven't flown with them in years, so I can only go in, you know, recent reviews. But my past experiences with them were always thumbs down on my part. Oh, I see. Well, I'm going to give them a sort of a like that, you know? Okay. No. So, I guess it depends on which way you fly. Well, we've kind of run out the, the clock on this one. Uh, I was going to give, you know, I'll just give quick honorable mention, looking up a story on our site with uh, Alberta member of the legislature, Janice Irwin, and uh, her uh, showing a lot of love for Hamas on t Twitter. So perhaps check that out. And it just seems, as we said earlier, every province seems to have yeah. one like that. There's a nutcase in Ontario. Is, she, like is, is Janice Irwin a Harvard graduate? Could very well be. That, that would explain a few things right there. I have a friend once who went to go to cut a master's at Harvard. She said, I know what it cost me, but now we'll find out what it's worth. I think it's worth a little less these days. Yeah, afraid it is, and it's unfortunate. So, uh, well, th thank you very much for joining us today, Michelle. It was appreciated to get the perspective i'll have to get you back on my show sometime again soon and uh, people can find more of your stuff at, at uh, friends of science site and, and elsewhere yeah so thank you thanks right, for having thanks. On the show yeah and we'll see you again soon and uh nigel well we covered what was on the list the first one of the year here yeah yeah well we'll have to give derek another day off <laughs> What you put in this coffee, man? Yeah, there's always a, a, a way to bring that about. We're finding ways to make the newsroom more enjoyable all the time. All right. Well, thank you guys. And thank you guys out there for watching us today. Uh, again, be sure to take out a subscription with the Western Standard. If you haven't already, I'm sure most of you already have. I hope you're all having a great and happy new year, guys. And be sure to tune in next week at this time. And we'll do it all again with a whole new set of issues to gripe and grouse about or even celebrate and be positive about occasionally. So thanks again. We'll see you then. Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Without the CSSA, our gun rights would have been taken long Long ago, these guys are on the front lines uh, helping to draft smart and intelligent firearms, regulations and legislation in Canada, and more importantly, educating the public about how we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. You become a member, it's absolutely worth every penny. You can become a Western Standard member for just $10 a month or $99 a year for unlimited access.